We are reading from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 to the end of the chapter. In what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, all in dens and caves of the earth. And in all these, those commended through their faith did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, good morning again, and I'm thrilled to have all of you with us here this morning. We are coming to the end of chapter 11 uh, in the book of Hebrews. It's not the end of the book, although it may feel like it at this stage of the game. We've been in chapter 11 for a couple of months now, but we have two chapters to go in this glorious book, and I hope that you uh, have enjoyed our study thus far Chapter 11 is the chapter that's called the Hall of Faith, and it's an extraordinary chapter indeed. But uh, as we begin this morning, I'm going to ask you to put your thinking caps on, not because what I will say is all of that complicated, but what I will say is terribly challenging, at least it was to me. And uh, I'm not trying to be challenging, but the text of Scripture is. And so it asks questions of its readers and of its hearers that are not always comfortable, and today is no exception. But I do want to remind us of the context of the book as a whole. I've done this a number of occasions throughout our study in the book, but uh, it's good to be reminded because it's very important for today in particular. This letter, all 13 chapters, was written to a fairly small house church of Christian Jews. These were Jews who had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by hearing the gospel, uh, a small group of people that lived in... um, in and around probably a suburb of Rome. They were familiar and had a relationship with the writer of this letter, but they were a group of people who had come to faith without ever having met the Lord Jesus, and they lived at a unique period in history. Uh, Nero was the empire. If you studied any history at all, I was a terrible history student, which is to my shame, because now I love it so much. Nero was not a pleasant chap, to say the least. Uh, These 
Jewish Christians had a big temptation, and the temptation was to drift back into Judaism. And there was a, a number of reasons why it was tempting. Number one, it was old and familiar, and it had been part of their upbringing and their family life and their culture for centuries. And so they knew the ins and the outs of it, and you could see it, and you could taste it, and you could smell it. You could go to the temple, and there were priests there offering sacrifice, and you could come away feeling substantial. Beyond that, the Roman Empire at the time was slightly more lenient toward Jews than they were toward Christians at this particular period of history. And so there may have been a temptation to drift back into Judaism because it may take a little of the heat off of certain individuals. And the last reason that I'll articulate this morning that it would have been tempting to drift back into it is every family member and every friend that you ever had from Jewish culture was saying, what in the world are you doing? You have the temple, you have a sacrificial system which has been given to you by God and you're turning your back on that. So there were strained relationships, both in family and in business and in friendship. And, and so that temptation was real. Beyond that, the earlier parts of Hebrews tell us that this small church had already started to feel the pressure of persecution. There were members who had been imprisoned because the writer tells them, I'm grateful that you went to visit those who were in prison. And some in the church had already endured having had their property confiscated from them because they were Christian. In other words, the people to whom this letter was written have already endured more pressure than anybody in America has ever endured for being a Christian but the pressure was about to be turned up. Big time, big time. Nero would kill thousands upon thousands of Christians in unspeakable ways. And so, and so we have this letter given to them to be encouraged to keep their eyes focused on the reality that the Lord Jesus Christ is superior as priest, as king, as Savior, as Lord. And this chapter, chapter 11, has been given to these people to be reminded that from their own history, there were those people who had tremendous faith in God and his promises. And the beginning of the chapter says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen. They hoped in something that was not yet seen. And so we've marched through this chapter and it's been an extraordinary chapter, but, but I kind of know maybe what you have been thinking or feeling as we've gone through this thing, we've talked about men like Abraham and Noah and Enoch. 
and, and others. And, and we hear those names and we know their stories, these men and women who maintained an incredible faith during challenging times. And, and we go from Abel to Samuel and then we'll conclude with the prophets. And our response is maybe something like this. They're, they're bigger than life. They're storybook figures. We don't believe that they're false. We know that they're real people, but, but it's awfully hard to relate to these people. God spoke to them at a different time in history, and he spoke to them in different ways than he speaks to us today. And, and they had tremendous stories of victory in the here and now. They were way above average, and I'm awfully average. I am. I'm just an ordinary average guy, and these people are presented to us in, in extraordinary ways, and it's awfully hard to relate to them. But then I got to thinking the original hearers of this letter were terribly average people as well. Ordinary Christian Jews who just happened to be living in a hard period in history. And if these examples were given to them who were average, maybe I better pay attention. Maybe I'd better listen because these examples were given to me as much as they were given to this Hebrew church back in the late 60s ADs. And so what happens is the writer comes to the conclusion of this section and he does not run out of space, but he runs out of time to tell us about more that we could talk about from the Old Testament who are people of faith. So if you look with me at verse 32 of chapter 11, this is what the writer says. And, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, where women received back their dead, with the hope of resurrection to come. This list continues, and the writer says, I wish I had time to tell you all about them. Now, the original hearers knew all about these people. We don't. Most of the people in this last section of this list are an interesting group of people. In fact, the list kind of started with Rahab that we looked at last week. Not only are they ordinary, but they're really flawed. They're people who have major moral flaws, and this is where I can kind of start to relate to them. 
You know, I can really wrap my head around flawed people. Much easier than these people that had these massive victories. Gideon had a tremendous victory. Gideon was a man who, who, who struggled with doubt and with fear. And, and wanted proof that things were going to work out. But, but God told him to, to take up and, and fight the Midianites, which were a, a tremendous army that was opposed to Israel at the time. And Gideon had an army of 32,000, which at the time was pretty extensive. And God said, you know what, that's, that's a few too many. And so through a series of events, the army was whittled down from 32,000 to 300. And God said, I want you to take clay jars, and I want you to take torches, and I want you to put the torches under the clay jars, and when I tell you to, I want you to break the jars and see what happens. And the Midianites were so terrified by that event that they turned on each other and started killing each other. And, and Gideon was victorious. But he was weak in character, and that part I get. Barak uh, was another guy who it was during the period of the judges, and, and Deborah, a lady, was the judge of Israel at the time. And, and God said, I want you to go up against this fellow whose name is Sisera. And, uh, and Barak also had his worries and his doubts. And he, he went to Deborah, the judge, and he said, I'll go fight this battle for Israel as long as you go with me, lady. He wanted to be led by a woman into battle. Well, he had an army of 10,000, but Sisera, aside from his army, which could not be numbered, had 900 steel chariots. Now, that may not sound like a big deal, but imagine 900 tanks, which is the equivalent, going up against 10,000 foot soldiers. 10 to 1, tanks win. But Barak was victorious in battle. Samson, most of us know about Samson. Samson didn't even come to faith until the last few moments of his life. Up to that point, you know what he was? He was an egomaniac and a womanizer. I mean, really, he was morally bankrupt, stretched and deceived, and did nothing right with the truth, came to faith at the end. And so I wonder why in the world? What were his victories? Well, certainly the Philistines fell to Samson in the end, but. He's commended for his faith, which came right at the end. Jephthah, find him in Judges, a terribly flawed individual. The first sermon I ever preached as an adult was on Jephthah. It was terrible. But God said, I want you to go up against the armies of Israel. And he made a hasty vow in his own flesh, which cost him the life of his own daughter. But he was victorious. And on and on the list goes. And so there's part of me that relates to their flawed characters. 
But they all had victories, you know, in the here and now, on the temporal level. You know, they conquered armies. Uh, uh, tremendous things were happening, but they were, they were flawed. And so we can relate to the, maybe the morality or the character of these people. None of us are, are and I'm being serious, womanizers and, and all the rest of it. But we, we get the fear and the concern and the doubt and the worry. And, and, and we hope for those victories regardless. But then the writer makes a major shift in his argument here. And it becomes very difficult. Halfway through verse 35, he starts talking, if you will, about the losers, not the victors. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment and they were stoned and they were sawn in two and they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted and mistreated. And of these, the world was not worthy. The writer ships to a a group of people from the Old Testament who, whose victories were unknown, who didn't conquer armies. And, and you read this. Jesus' own words say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. Jeremiah the prophet was stoned. The Apostle Paul was stoned. There are examples throughout the Bible of people who came to give God's word to his people and, and they were met with this kind of hostility. Isaiah, historically, was sawn in two. Now, I very seldom give sermon illustrations, and this may not be advisable, but when I was young, I spent a summer in Spain. And while I was in Spain, for reasons inexplicable, for a very brief period of time, I was in there about six minutes, really and truly, I, I went to the Museum of the Inquisition. And, and what I found in the museum were all the implements that were used to torture people. Now, of course, this came way later than the times that are being referred to in the book of Hebrews, but, but the depravity of man has not changed. And there I, it was that I learned to my horror that when they sawed someone in two, they didn't lay them on a table and cut them in half through the belly, you see. They hung them up by their feet and went right down between the legs. 
And if your mind wanders there, you can see what that would mean. And this is how Isaiah was put to death. And the other things that I saw as I fled the building were even more vile than that. And that's what's being spoken of here. Elijah and Elijah, Elisha, the prophets, walked around wearing the skins of animals and lived in caves and were fed by ravens who brought them scraps of food. Daniel was thrown in the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace. And, and on and on and on the list goes. Here we have the losers. Where are the conquered armies? Where is the victory in the here and now, you see? And we can't relate to them either. We can't. You see, there's part of the church out there who, who will say, if you have faith, everything will go right for you in the here and now. Money or relationship or job or what, I mean, you know. The list goes on and on. And if it's not going right, it's because you don't have enough faith. And if you get your faith right, everything in the here and now will be okay. That is a lie. It's a bold-faced lie that ignores the Bible and sweeps the book of Hebrews right under the table. It is heresy. Because these people are commended for their faith, and they were losers. They were tortured. And, and I want to be very careful here, because I'm, it's, it's one of those few times when I, when I want to yell... We, we can feel or think that Christianity is American. And we forget that most Christians in the world are currently, right now today, facing this list of atrocities and have for every generation since Christ. We're the only nation that doesn't think people suffer for their faith. Really and truly. And it's to our shame. So here we are, and, and we're, we're in this quandary at the end of the chapter. Maybe you're not, and I'm talking for myself. It's hard to relate to the great victors, right? I can relate on some level to the losers, but I don't share their experience because I really don't suffer for being Christian. I mean, the worst thing 
I have to fear today is being laughed at, somebody not listening to me, speaking up in the workplace, being known as Christian. Well, that, that's, that's a long ways from having my property seized or going to jail or being stoned or being sawn in two or being thrown to the lions, which the Christians under Nero were done. So I can't wrap my head around this. And so I say, what do I do and where do I go? And, and I think about these things, and I'm really not trying to be graphic, and I think, would I have the faith if I fell into this category from verse 35 to 38? And, and I dare to dream and hope that I would, you see? But what if it was my wife or my children that were put before my eyes? And that it wasn't just me, see? Oh, it gets complicated in a hurry, doesn't it? I mean, it gets very, very real. Would I hold fast to what God had promised when that was facing me. That's a very, very real question. These original hearers were facing that, and they all did, and they all died, afflicted, mistreated, and the writer says the world was not worthy of them. I don't have any idea what the future holds. I really have no idea. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. And I never will be. But it's hard to relate to the victories. And it's hard to relate to the torture, isn't it? So my question to myself was, why don't I get my act together now? You know? I mean, why don't I have more gumption now? Well, the text concludes with two verses. One will need some explanation. Verse 39 says, and all these. Now, when he says all these, he's not just talking about the losers. He's talking about the victors. Okay? He's talking about the whole list from Abel to the prophets, all the way down, everybody. And this is important. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Every person in this list was commended for their faith, whether they received a victory on earth by conquering an army or being a capitalist and a captain of industry or 
or whether they were the losers and died for their faith. All of them were commended for their faith, but not a single one of them got what was promised. You see what a lie it is to say that if I have faith, the here and now is going to go smooth? That's a lie. Because the winners and the losers in that verse are all of a sudden put on the same playing field. You see, everything is leveled. Those who have victory in the here and now are the same as those who died for their faith with nothing. The ground is leveled. And they didn't get what was promised. The victory that comes through faith has nothing to do with the here and now. Now, some of us, and and it's really true by and large for most of us, will, will, and, and this is not a bad thing, will cruise through life and things will be comparatively easy and some of us may be tremendous victors in the here and now. Family life will be great. Job will be good. Finances are not a worry. Things go smoothly. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. But that's not the sign of faith. That's not the evidence that God's hand rests on you. Because God's hand rests as much on the person who's being sawn in two wearing a goat skin and is starving to death. God's hand is on them as much as the victor. And then in verse 40 it says, now hear this, it's very confusing in English. It's not so tough in other languages. Since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, They should not be made perfect. It sounds as if we're the ones that made these old guys perfect. Doesn't it sound that way in English? But here's what he's telling the original hearers, and here's what he's telling us. And tell me if I'm not clear, because it's very important. The people that heard this for the first time, and we afterwards are the recipients of the full knowledge of God's plan in Jesus Christ. That Jesus came to die, to raise again, and to be king of his people, of all the universe. And we are, and they were, the benefactors of that knowledge. Okay? They, we are the recipients and, and the people who are now aware of what the promise of God for the future really means. His presence, his place under his kingship, and this earth has been destroyed. What we carry with that knowledge and what these people did in the time of the book of Hebrews had that knowledge, you see. And it was that knowledge that those in the Old Testament longed to have. And so all of a sudden, we are brought in to the level playing field. Do you see what I'm saying? 
Those who were victors in the Old Testament, those who were the losers who died for their faith, and those of us who now know the full plan of God revealed in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ are all on the same playing field. And the promise is the same for everyone. That's the point. That's the point. And so the question still remains, and we'll start to hit on it next week. But let me leave us with this. What do I do now? What do I do now? Because I'm not going to conquer an army this afternoon. I really am not. And I I don't think God's going to call me to that. I hope that God does not call me to prison or to torture or my family or those that I love this afternoon. And while I cannot understand how I might maintain my faith in those moments, what do I do now? Because I'm on the same playing field with the winners and the losers. Because I know what God has promised in Christ Jesus. And it has nothing to do with the here and now. Jesus is the author of our faith. He created it. He's the creator of our faith. And he is the perfecter of our faith. To him who is the author and perfecter of our faith, not only should full allegiance be given, but he is the one who intercedes for us. So I should be praying like a madman. God, make me the person of faith that you want me to be so that despite earthly victory or earthly failure, I keep my eyes on what you have accomplished by your death and resurrection. This is the only thing that will ensure my faith whether winner or loser. Let's pray. Father, you are, through your Son, the author and perfecter of our faith. It is difficult for me, and it may be for my friends, to relate to the winners and to what I am calling the losers. But all of them kept their eye on the promise that had nothing to do with this earth. Help us to keep our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, in whose name we pray. Amen.